Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He joins us Friday mornings uh, for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you. Good to be with you again. They, um, as you described to us last week, Israel has... Uh, essentially locking down the country. I don't know if that's really the appropriate term for the stage that they're at right now, uh, for Lagbomer, being very strict about Lagbomer. Then I heard this morning that they uh, that they are wary of opening up synagogues um, to full capacity, even for the holiday of Shavuos, which, of course, is uh, two weeks from this coming Thursday night. Um, I was under the impression that Israel was opening more rapidly and more aggressively than most other places. Are they going to take a, a very hard look before they reopen their synagogues completely? Yeah, they, they opposed uh, pretty strict restrictions on on the opening even now, and, and people think it's just everything is open. It's not so, and there's still, you see the pictures that uh, people wear masks, and there is actually pretty strict adherence to the protocols in, in Israel, which is why they um, have performed so well. The... Um, and you see there's still restrictions on people gathering and, and uh, on Minyanim and, and uh, other events. It, they did loosen it somewhat for certain restrictions, hostness and stuff. Uh, but, look, there were five more people died yesterday, and, and the number still goes up. It's not as if it's all stopped. Yeah. And, and it's a test. You know, many parents have not sent their kids to school even in the ages that are, that they've opened, and they're doing it gradually, which is the right way. Uh, many of the teachers have expressed um, real concern about it, about the, the nature of the opening and, and the um, ability to, to really uh, to, to bring back life back to normal is, is difficult. But the cost of an economic show, uh, closing is, is really huge, and it takes lives also as people, you know, Take uh, see their businesses collapse and stuff. It has a, it takes a tremendous toll as well. People, it's not a, a, a one-sided story. But the the government has uh, has done a good job with um, with the, with the response and using the military very effectively in assisting in the people and providing food and bringing um, taking care of the elderly so that they don't have to go out. And I know that it's still restricted. I know that, for instance, old age homes, people need a permit to be able to go, and they still have to stand outside the gate um, right. uh, to visit people. And I saw, speaking of the IDF, that uh, their furlough situation, which had been very limited, they most of them had to stay on bases if they weren't working for COVID specifically, and the public transportation restriction about them traveling on public transportation have been uh, reopened. So in that aspect, life is going back to normal. But as you described, uh, it's going back to normal slowly in certain areas and obviously even more slowly in other areas. Did you see that report? I think it was over the weekend last week about the numbers of ca- the number of cases of COVID in Gaza and how low they were. And I was wondering if that was propaganda or if that's a reality. Well, first of all, it's a tremendous story that that doesn't get told. Uh, I know it's not specifically what you're alluding to, but yes, the answer is yes. It is very low. They had a visit uh, somebody who came back from Pakistan, and he infected a number of the office, the Hamas-based uh, people. But uh, you know, the border guards uh, when he came from Egypt and infected seven, ten people. Uh, but the number is very low. The doctors are training in Israel. 
<laughs> the nurses are training in Israel. Did you read about that in the New York Times? Oh, no. um, you must have missed it. I'm sorry to hear, see you then. But the, the, they didn't tell the Palestinian Authority that they were doing it. So the health minister from the PA started criticizing Hamas for allowing their people to go. And, of course, they don't want to publicize because they don't want to, God forbid, be seen as recognizing the Zionist entity. But there was a group of nurses that first went, then administrators and doctors. They trained in Israeli hospitals how to deal with the, the virus. Israel also put through a lot of medical equipment. In one week, I think 135 tons of, of medicines and equipment and stuff was sent in. And the, uh, I mean, again, we don't necessarily know the true numbers because, you know, dictatorships don't don't reveal what they don't want out. But the number is low. And this this story, which I think is, is really amazing, yeah. you know, when you have a rocket this week and uh, there was an incident where a guy blew himself up in his car, he had a work accident or got blown up in his car as he was had explosive devices and the there were um, there were other incidents uh, this week uh, but the rocket was the first one in in 40 days the um and it was also a palestinian i think who was crushed in in a terror tunnel so the the you know they reject normalization the 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 hamas people but at the same time they're taking advantage of what Israel has to offer. And by the way, the PA is not only critical of them, but they're critical of these TV shows, which I think we spoke about last week in the Arab world, where Saudi UAE-based Middle East Broadcasting Corporation showed this story of a Jewish family living in the Gulf. And some of the others, the Fauda is very, very popular. It's number one in Lebanon on Netflix, <laughs> number three in the UAE, number six in, in Jordan. Wow. Um, and they're attacking it because they're saying this is all part of the campaign to normalize, uh, to normalize uh, the relationship. And yet the PA continues to provide the money to terrorists. And, to, and, and now, in their monthly budget report, they eliminated the line that talks about the Department of, um, of Palestinian um, – uh, I forgot the exact name – but the, the rights of, of Palestinians uh, in service, which really is, is the pay-to-slay department where they you know, would record how much money they were paying in salaries to terrorists and to their, or to their families. Now they've eliminated that line. And somehow absorbed it in other parts of the budget because they became under so much criticism for it. So, you know, that story, all of the stories get almost no coverage in the in the um, in this in the press of COVID coverage today. Including, by the way, the International Criminal Court, which we haven't talked about, but while even during this period, they've been moving ahead. And Bensuda, the the uh, Fatou Bensuda, who's the um, chief prosecutor there, has recognized Palestinians uh, that Palestinians have a state, and saying that therefore they have standing to bring a case, which most international lawyers or many, many states in Israel, amongst them, have have uh, said they do not. And she even cited ridiculously the Oslo Accords as proof of that. And they um, and and they're moving ahead because they want to be able to then bring war crime charges against Israel uh, for the you know, defensive acts against terrorists. And there's now a pre-trial chamber of judges who have to affirm or deny the the status of of whether Palestinians have legitimate status uh, 
you know, this body was created, I think, in 2002 to, to deal with, you know, real crimes of genocide and, and uh, mass murder. And now they're, they're, again, distorting. And this is a campaign that's been going on for a long time. And it would give legitimacy then to uh, the Palestinian, the, the most extreme interpretation of the Palestinian position and would highly polarize the already partisan court. Uh, Malcolm, I'm having a little bit of trouble with your phone. If you can move closer to your base, I appreciate it. We, you just reminded me when you mentioned the New York Times and things they keep secret or things they avoid reporting. In the in the article a couple of weeks ago about the kid that and kid, I mean someone in his twenties, I believe, who was trying to and successfully was arranging Zoom sessions between Arab and Israelis just to get people talking. I believe he was jailed, if I'm not mistaken. And the New York Times, you know, reported as a matter of fact, and I don't think ever had an opinion piece condemning the PA for for jailing a kid or a 20 year old, whatever it was, who's who's trying to bridge the gap between societies. He was arrested and uh, taken into custody. It's not the first time uh, that they have taken action against somebody who simply tried to build bridges and ties, but this one went public. And, yes, it is very rare for the New York Times to do that. And to offer an opinion about uh, you know, how they feel uh, regarding the, the rights of that young man um, uh, vis-a-vis the, uh, the PA authorities. By the way, speaking of Israel, and I know we do this every week, but we should – uh, it is amazing the different treatments and uh, vaccine efforts that we're hearing about, and you've described many of them for us. But yesterday I had Professor Moyal on from the Tel Aviv School of Engineering. Malcolm, they are actually, and he spoke to us about it yesterday, they are actually developing a way through voice recognition that if someone is able to hear, you literally send a voice note to a doctor or to one of their researchers, they can give you, they can, through artificial intelligence, determine whether your throat is suffering from a positive effect of COVID-19. And obviously the research is being done for a million other things as well. It could be helpful for flu, et cetera. And he's not saying that people shouldn't get tested in the traditional manner. Obviously they should. But this could be an unbelievable boon in terms of just getting an idea numbers-wise of, of the a number of uh, people in the population who, are te- who, who would test positive. And Israel's also working on dogs being able to, to test, you know, by smell, if they have people have a COVID, there are dogs that can detect certain cancers. Uh, but also there's an, a and so many things that are applicable. But one is a bar that people, when you walk through, like in the airports, universities, right. schools, right. it can detect omas if people have, if individuals have fever. Unbelievable! You so have it good, can detect individuals, which incredible. is also going to make it a lot easier. By the way, with all in all seriousness, with all this technology, if we know if we know the Spanish flu was three years, January 2018 to December uh, 1918, December 1920. If it was three years, and now we're at such an advanced technological. Uh, situation and Israel's at the forefront of it with all these innovations. It shouldn't just just by nature. <laughs> I like how I say that. Just by nature, just the way things work naturally. Shouldn't this COVID nineteen last only a few months till we have a real breakthrough technologically? It depends on how complicated the virus is and the ability to detect to come up with a, a, a vaccine because that's really the only thing that will. Uh, make a qualitative change. You can do preventative things. We can have better the testing. You have uh, Israel, Technion, and others are developing uh, much better case um, detection systems that are more accurate and much faster. You know, at first it was taking a week. Now they're down to, to 45 minutes or something to, to um, 
detect whether people have it, but also the development of antibodies. And there are Israeli companies, Pluristem uh, Bonus, that are working on stem cell uh, research, which had an applic- has been applied and said to be very beneficial. So, yes, we hope that this is not going to last uh, long. But if you look at how many of those who analyzed these situations, the futurists and others, they're all talking about December Right. Or, or even into 2021 with right. the lasting impact, and especially for you if the baseball season doesn't get started. <laughs> right. I was wondering if you Phillies fans were able to uh, put up with this or not. But <laughs> As much as I watch the Phillies, I can put up with it. <laughs> exactly. Hey, Malcolm has revealed himself as a phony baseball. I knew it all along. I knew it all along that you weren't a sincere Phillies fan. <laughs> Just kidding, of course. Uh, do you recommend um, – as the as the protests continue to increase, New York, New Jersey, obviously around the country, but I say New York, New Jersey, because I think people wondered if in places like New Jersey uh, there, there would be such aggressive protests like there were in Trenton this week. Do you suggest that members of our community be very careful before taking to the streets in these anti-government rallies to reopen? I think that they have to be very careful on a number of grounds and with public statements and with the, of course, with the behavior and the, the, you know, testing the limits and, and violations. Um, the, the, um, we, we've had enough incidents and publicity that is attendant to it. Although now it's, it's been a little bit more quiet and perhaps right. some people sensitized to, to the biased reporting that uh, especially the, some elements of our community were subjected to, um, but yes, because you don't know who you're allying with. There are a lot of people who are engaged in these things who belong to very extreme movements. Obviously, there are people who are sincerely motivated, who feel frustrated, whose businesses are collapsing, who are afraid that uh, you know that they will not have anything left when they come out of this. And I have a lot of sympathy for those people, and I don't know an easy answer. But I think for members of our community, you should be very careful about what you're pressing for and whether we're really ready, whether our institutions, clearly our yeshivas aren't and won't reconvene, likely, um, you know, in this, it's the high schools and elementary schools certainly won't, and that the the, the pressure on, on building on prematurely could be very counterproductive. We paid a heavy toll so far. Yeah. We don't want to see that extended. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web at NahumSingle.com and the NahumSingle Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Uh, our fundraiser is on. Go to fjbunity.org to support us. And today's broadcast is sponsored by loyal listener Bob Fenichel of Silver Spring, Maryland. And we thank him. And finally, because we have to move on from the COVID-19 topic, but I, I have to mention because Rabbi Fast was on, uh, and, and I know you and I have already discussed the, the, the hard fact that the uh, uh, the interest in Aliyah now is stronger. I don't want to say stronger than ever, but has <laughs> but has increased like crazy, especially over last year, just from the downloads on the Nefesh Benefesh website and the reaction that he has gotten from around the world, not just North America, but from around the world from Jewish leaders in different cities in the diaspora. And uh, he... Uh, he, I mean, he said a lot of the things that you've said, but I thought it was an interesting analysis the way he put it. Uh, people are now realizing that as beloved as our communities are, you know, we haven't been to shul in eight weeks, and it's possible maybe to move on and build another community in Israel or help build another community 
in Israel. And then, of course, he mentioned that, you know, it's very, very vital to be connected to our families. And we we miss them when we're not around them, as we proved over Pesach and over the last eight weeks. But, uh, you know, now we do see that we somewhat can be socially connected to our family and our friends through Zoom and other means, even from around the world. And, of course, the third thing is obvious, and that is that so many people are now discovering uh, they can work anywhere, and obviously Israel would be a good choice. So with all the times, Malcolm, that I had predicted, that 9-11 and that wars and the 2014 summer, that all this would make the Aliyah numbers drop, sure enough, in this case of COVID as well, it just goes in the opposite direction. So the uh, it is true, and uh, I, I saw a number... I think of 50,000 people expressing interest during this period in, in Aliyah, I guess worldwide. But the the and remember that in Europe this is uh, all happening as well. Um, the, the, the there's another factor, and that is first of all, a lot of people are unemployed, and if you're already unemployed and you can look to rebuild your life in Israel, right. that's uh, attractive. And tuition, you can get your kids can get a good Jewish education at a fraction of the cost of it is here. Uh, which makes up a big part of budget for many families. I mean, there are a lot of considerations, and not negative ones, positive ones, right. about maybe people are reassessing. And I think two things. One is that people really need community, and the community really needs the people. And that's true here, and you see that in the response to Chesed, the amazing things that were done. And I hope books will be written about all of the heroes, quiet, public, and uh, I, I see it in the cases that I've been brought into and issues and stuff to see how many people are, are involved in doing wonderful things, trying to help others. Um, you know, the amount of of uh, this kind of uh, real devoted chesed. And in Israel, you see all the young people going to old age homes, the army's involvement, going into communities, providing food. And it's building bridges between people that had no contact before. So true. And I think for many of us who and people, I think in the Jewish community, follows what was going on in Israel. You know, and they, they were reminded of the connection, and this is Gesher Tzarmod that the whole world is such a narrow bridge that we in Israel today are neighbors, and that people hopefully can reassess what the priorities are. Yeah, no question about it. Excellent, excellent analysis, and I hope, I hope we've prompted even more discussion tonight at the collective Friday night uh, uh, dinner table because uh, it's something that families certainly should be talking about. Has Iran really retreated from Syria? No, I don't think that they've retreated. I do think that they have repositioned. Uh, whether they've reduced the number of troops there, we, we will only know later. Uh, but they're not going to withdraw from, from Syria because they have too much uh, vested there. They have, uh, of course, the Hezbollah, and they want this as the the uh, staging ground against Israel. They have their missile capacities, they, the uh, infiltration across the Golan, and we've seen no diminution in that regard. The attempts, you saw last week, the attempts to cross from Lebanon into Israel. Uh, so there are, there are reports that they have moved out of bases in certain areas that were targeted by Israel and moved to suburban areas uh, near Damascus. Uh, because of the attacks on Homs Airport, and you know that a number of Iranians were killed this past week in in some of the raids. Uh, so it may be just a redeployment of resources. Obviously, the Russians would like to see, the, and I think the Syrians would like to see the Iranians uh, move out more. We know that they have repositioned, or the Hezbollah has been re, 
position in Lebanon and in some of the other countries as, A, they don't have the resources um, that they used to have, and uh, B, that their manpower is being spread in Iraq and Syria and Yemen and other places. So the, the um, you know, they, they threaten the United States, Iran, with a crushing response if we go ahead with the arms embargo that, that Secretary of State Pompeo is trying to arrange. Unfortunately, the Russians will veto it. The Chinese will veto it in the United Nations because both of them are sitting on the sideline with all the deals signed to provide new weapons to, to Iran, which, you know, appeals to the international community for economic aid, but they don't spend money on fighting the virus or doing other things. The money goes into their nuclear program, and as we've seen, the, sat- the military satellite that they launched. Uh, so there are many experts who believe that they can, they may could reduce slightly, they could reposition, but that Iran can't afford to, to withdraw the cost still is is heavy for them there, both in terms of the deployments, but they continue shipping um, weapons, and and they're doing globally. We saw in Venezuela the shipment of of um, and uh, planes, Mahan airplanes, landing there three last week, and taking back huge amounts of gold, tons of gold, which Venezuela is paying from their meager resources, paying Iran for having rebuilt, uh, for instance, their gasoline refineries, which had become, were not functional, and with oil not being exported, which is Venezuela's main source of income, and the tremendous investment that Iran has made there, and it's also the fulcrum of their activities in South America. So Iran seems to still put that as the priority over its own people, uh, and they, they, they uh, by the way, they did cancel the Al-Quds Day at annual uh-huh. events, you know, marking Jerusalem Day, right. which uh, are always an occasion for very anti-Israel activities, but they will do it online. They, they said so not to fear <laughs> that you won't have your uh, your yearly dose of hatred and um, incidents. And by the way, a, a, another thing that hardly got reported, that 70 Afghanis were trying to return to Iran because many of them left when COVID struck, and some just come in to work. And uh, they stopped one group of 70, which was documented. We don't know how many more there were. Uh, and they, they, they beat them up, the Iranian uh, guards, and threw them in a river. At least uh, two dozen died. Uh, and the, the, um, uh, this is one of the few stories that got out through a survivor of the, of the incident. But the media, you know, is so distorted in this regard and, and this attempt to try and repaint Iran and the pressure, you know, to to not continue the JCPOA and the sanctions and the which are are really have, taking a toll and limiting their ability to to undermine governments in the region and around the world. I mean, some have predicted the JCPOA is dead by the you know toward the end of uh, of twenty twenty. Is it likely or not? Well, I think in part it depends on the outcome of the election and and the oh, good decisions point, right. taken by the by Congress. We yeah. don't know who will control Congress and right. how strong the resolve will be to to continue. And I think the um, Trump administration has indicated its readiness to do so. Um, uh, we know that the, uh, if the Democrats take over, they may re- want to rewrite it. They may want to readjust it. But the the fact is that Iran is still moving ahead. It's in complete violation of the JCPOA, moving ahead on its nuclear program, the missile program, which, uh, as demonstrated by the launching of that satellite, which is not really an intelligent satellite because its pictures has no have no resolution. But it's really to develop their missile com- 
capacity, ones that can carry a nuclear warhead, and they're not allowed to do that. So they do it under the guise of a domestic space program. But it's really the purpose is to, to advance their intercontinental ballistic missile ability. What do we know about the new prime minister of Iraq? That he, he, This is an Iranian stooge that this is uh, the third, I think he's the fourth candidate that they've put up. The others were not considered uh, trustworthy enough. And I know that Bani Sadr, that was the religious leader in Iraq, had opposed them because they were too pro-Iranian. And uh, this guy <coughs> is... I think is trying to be portrayed as more of a technocrat, but the this, the successor to Soleimani was in Baghdad and pressing them about getting somebody who who was more acceptable to Iran. So we'll have to see, but I don't know that we'll, we'll see a major shift in policy. I'm sorry for bringing it up every week, but it's but uh, some things I, I do bring up every week. But in this case, there's another statement every week. It looks like as we get closer and closer to July, uh, the annexation and the approval of annexation by the U.S. is is imminent. And every week there are more statements by responsible people, ambassadors, and other administration members that, that seem to allude to it, if not directly say it. Well, they say it, but if they if they, they also, in the last week or two, David Friedman, the ambassador, others are creating a context saying that it has to be a total acceptance of the, of the plan, meaning that in the context of negotiations with the Palestinians for a two-state solution, but the plan says that if they – that Israel has to make the offer and has to reach out to them. But if they don't accept in Israel, um, you know, for the next three years, I think five years is limited in its expansion and building in into the settlement blocks, the existing ones, and that the Palestinians, you know, have to make up their mind. Do they want to have a better future and do they want to sit and negotiate with Israel? Right now, the the question is that what annexation means. Does it mean extension of law? Does it mean other things in terms of uh, applying sovereignty? Does it mean just the uh, Jordan Valley, which has more universal agreement, or E1 people are talking about in Mala Dumim, or does it include the settlement blocks? I mean, a lot of things have to be defined, and there, you know, there were questions raised. Everybody interprets every word that officials say or don't say. But we'll see more because Secretary Pompeo is going to Israel this week. Oh wow! We'll meet with Gantz and Netanyahu, and I'm sure this is going to be a priority subject. Uh, very cool. I'm glad somebody's able to travel to Israel. <laughs> <laughs> one day, I hope. One night, one day, one night. Little, cool. Does he have a hotel to stay in? Because the one we like staying in is not opening up till the middle of June. So I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, uh, I, I think I, I, somebody told me that the King David had kept open rooms for diplomats or emergency situations. But wow. I've, I've not heard of anybody staying there. Interesting. So I, I don't think he has a problem, though. Interesting. I may not serve him breakfast, so I hope he has a care package from home. Um, uh, the, the prime minister got the mandate this week. So by what date do you think we'll swear in the new Israeli government? Well, they've been swearing at the new Israeli government <laughs> all along. Now the question is about the swearing in probably on Wednesday. Oh, this week? This coming week. Yeah. Oh, very good. So finally, well, they'll they, be... need to, well, they had to meet this deadline because if they didn't, the, that would have run the clock and, and the president would have had to call for new elections oh, wow. today. So, so that's good news. And so this uh, agreement, you know, they made adjustments after the Supreme Court made some uh, comments about the agreement after reviewing it, but essentially came out and said that Netanyahu could form the government. And the attorney general warned them now not to interfere and get any more into the you know, negotiations. But both sides, Blue and White and the Likud, uh, adjusted their agreements. They eliminated 
a couple of things and adjusted others on time limits, et cetera. Uh, you know, details that uh, you know are hard to for outsiders to understand, but they right. did make adjustments, and so the court they they could move ahead and. Yesterday they did, and they announced government, and it should be sworn in, I think, on Wednesday. Did this week's 11-0 to 0 vote uh, convince anybody that the prime minister controls the courts in Israel? Not given the criticism and the uh, way that they've treated him, I don't think that, that, that those who were critical of the courts were less critical. Um, but I think that they, you know, they know what the price would be, and th- that meant that we would have had to go – Israel would have had to go to new elections on August 4th. They know the people didn't want it, the cost, and with COVID and with everything else, it's not a time to to, to break the government down and to have the party split. There also was an interest because they saw that Netanyahu probably, according to the polls, would win a, a sufficient majority to be able to make a government. So the outcome you know, would have been the same. So I guess in a rational way that the court ruled that this was this is certainly the best solution right now because they and they they limited they did one of the things they struck down was that in the first six months they were only supposed to have legislation related to COVID and they found that illegal so I think they said that it, instead it would be the priority for the next three right. or six months would be to legislate and to you know deal with the economic implications and, of COVID and to their credit uh, judges of all different backgrounds. Uh, ag- Very different. Agreed on this, which I, I guess is, is good to have a consensus like that, especially at a time like this, as you described. Finally, Malcolm, I, I mean, look, I, we, we lo- I love your political analysis, uh, um, but I, I, maybe you could explain this one. Why does the presumptive Democratic candidate need to say that he's against the embassy being where it is, but he will keep it there for now? Who is he playing to when he makes a statement like that? And why not just keep, keep quiet on the issue? Well, the bottom line was that he said that he will keep the, and that was the headline, was that he will keep the embassy there. Right. But there were also other things that he said um, critical of Israel. And, uh, you know, he did accept an endorsement from J Street, but he has a, a long history of his own. And people have to look at the total picture. And it, and I don't think those statements came from him. It came from somebody representing him. Mm. Um, and there will be opportunities, I think, coming up soon where people will have a chance to directly hear from him, um, his views on a lot of the issues. He sees himself as very pro-Israel and resisted some of the pressures from within the Democratic Party, which is why people have to register, vote. You know, if you're a Democrat, get out there, vote, and work in your party, encounter the voices of extremism um, that exist there or in the uh, from the extreme right in the Republican Party. We want to make sure that we have the broadest possible support. There will be very important challenges uh, coming up, issues that have great significance. Uh, unemployment, they say, will, will be, uh, I don't know, 16 million or something, a huge number of people in, in the next reporting period. So the economic strains, others, they're going to be very great. We need to see unity. I hope that Congress can act as they did this past week when 387 members, 90% of the House, signed a letter urging the extension of the embargo on the arms embargo on Iran, wow. which is really a terrific demonstration and colorful vote to Elliot and McVeigh and the other members of the House Foreign Relations Committee and all the others who, who worked on it. 
but the the uh, but that kind of a demonstration is is very important. And we're going to go ahead and get into a partisan period. I mean, we'll hear a lot from Democrats, Republicans, and others. There are areas of concern, clearly political concern. We see some candidates that are of great concern. We also see, for instance, Zilan Omar being challenged by a very articulate, very impressive young man. Do the polls uh, give him a chance? You don't know. Yes. They do give him a chance? Well, the analysts give him a chance. Polls right. are too early right. yet. But the, um, you know, the, the, it's important, again, for everybody to be involved, to contribute to you know, help out now. This you can't get involved. There are no rallies, and you don't have the same opportunities to volunteer. But your voices can be heard online, and and in many ways, that um, at least express the opinions and and try to influence candidates and explain to them some of the issues that you know we have addressed. And it's only a few of of all of the things that are are, are going on. Um, you see, when we're united, and you get BDS legislation, and you can. Yeah. Uh, so many areas, and, this and is especially the, the battle against anti-Semitism, which is increasing now in the United States during COVID. They're taking advantage of it. We see it online. It's vicious. It's widespread. And, you know, that those things can then manifest in physical expressions, especially as things lift. But we already see attacks on synagogues and institutions. This is the time of year where the during a presidential election where the, where your conference would have invited Joe Biden to come and address Jewish leadership. Will that take place this summer via Zoom or via some conference call or something like that? Well, we invited the candidates. We had some of them um, already before the lockdown, but um, we usually try to do it after September. Otherwise, you ah. have to have all the candidates. You know, right. as a tax stamp body, you can't show favoritism or partisanship, let's say, with when you had 10, 12 right. candidates in the Democratic Party. Right. Um, but we, we did start then, and, and we will certainly uh, try to have it in um, before the election. My, my point being is that someone who would like to ask uh, Joe Biden or any candidate a direct question like that, our community leadership will have that opportunity at some point. I'm sure there will be opportunities, and there are briefings that are taking place or conference calls even during this period with right. the uh, Jewish groups, and uh, hopefully they're pressing them hard on these critical issues. All right, Malcolm, stay safe, stay healthy. Enjoy our ninth, ninth Shabbos in isolation, if I'm not mistaken. I believe it's uh, Somebody wrote me the good thing is that he hasn't talked in shul for eight weeks, <laughs> and so <laughs> everybody can find a silver lining. You know, some, peop this. some people start these press conferences reminding people what day it is. I just stumbled upon the fact that it was Parsha's MR this week. I'm ashamed to say. I completely lost track. Thank God I remembered before Shabbos is all I can say. <laughs> Glad you remember Shabbos. <laughs> you can say that again. Thank you so much. We'll speak again next week. Malcolm Holdline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM and the AM.